Well, hello today. I'm here with Julia Malott, and I'm so pleased to be able to have this conversation. We're, we just had a little chat right before hitting record, but it's the first time we're actually meeting, and we've, we've exchanged a couple messages on Twitter and stuff, and I've been so um, I just, I love hearing people who come from a reasonable sort of middle of the road. I, I, I'm trying not to say the word centrist because <laughs> I feel like it's, it's kind of being overused, but centrist perspective on these heated topics. And I've been watching your videos and I just really love the way you're able to handle some of the gender issues with nuance and respect to, and, and not taking a polar side. So thank you for agreeing to have a conversation with me today, Julia. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, um, you know, like I said, I've really just been enjoying your perspective and enjoying the, the balance that you bring to these issues, which seem to be so unbalanced lately. And I wonder, how did you find yourself, how did you first get involved in speaking about this in, in a public way? What made you decide to bring your perspective out in, onto YouTube or, or onto the internet? Yeah, I'd say it was a roundabout journey. Um, it's, I, I transitioned a little over five years ago, or I started transitioning a little over five years ago. And so I went through lots of phases. I went through a hide everything in the closet and don't talk to anybody phase and don't want to leave my house. And then I went through a, uh, a what I'll call a progressive phase, uh, kind of really uh, diving into that ideology in terms of what I felt affirming. Mm -hmm. And then I had some amazing life coaching about three years ago mm -hmm. that my work provided me. And it was a year long and I had one-on-one -on -one access to this, this coach as many times as I wanted a week. And I, uh, I made the best of that. I was really thankful to have that. And so I read many, many books of, with all kinds of diverse backgrounds and perspectives. And coming out of that, I realized some of the thought patterns in myself that was leading to a lot of the struggles that I was encountering. And it was easy to offload those on everybody else and say that it was society or it was individuals. Or, but I, I kind of realized I'm empowered to make my life whatever I want to make it. Mm -hmm. um, so coming out of that, I was adopting this new worldview. And then I live in um, near Toronto, Ontario. And we have a lot of uprise in our school boards right now in terms of concerns about what's being taught related to sex and gender. In, in many different school boards. And so in early 2022, an individual named Carolyn Berjowski went to our school board and she had concerns about certain books in terms of what was being presented, whether it was age appropriate and whether certain books might glamorize transition mm -hmm. and, and kind of edge kids towards transition who maybe mm -hmm. it's not appropriate for. And of course, I wasn't watching that meeting live because who watched school boards meeting yeah. meetings live in 2022? I, I certainly didn't, but... Um, her presentation was cut off by the chair because they felt that it was a human rights violation to really even broach these topics. And they then sent out a note to all of the parents. And I have a, I have a daughter who is in high school here. So I, I got that email and I couldn't not seek out the video because I thought, oh, something transphobic happened. I got to know what this is. Yeah. And the board had pulled it, but I found it on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And I remember getting to the end of that video and thinking, but where's the bad part? It kind of, it cuts off. And I, I assumed there was more and she must've said something really bad. And then yeah. that was the moment it kind of clicked for me of no, she didn't. What we're saying is bad is simply the fact that she's asking questions and has any concerns at all. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, I come from the municipal space. I work in, I, I have worked in municipal administration previously. And so I knew that this was an election year and it was going to be a school board election year as well. And so that moment I kind of thought, oh gosh, we're going to get 
the extremes on both the left and the right are going to come out and run for the school board in response to this. Mm -hmm. And I kind of thought maybe I'm a voice who needs to speak publicly because I am transgender. So I do understand this space in terms of a lot of the impacts and implications, but I also understood what concerns this teacher was raising and thought the conversations are important. So I I ran, Mm -hmm. I was not elected, but I met a lot of really great people on both sides of this divide through that process. And I took to, uh, to social media afterwards to try to express those views in as nuanced and conversational way as possible. Mm. So it sounds like you you witnessed firsthand this the the maligning of someone and the association of rather uh, I guess uh, to use the word again just rather nuanced views with something that's really extreme that false equivalency and then you you felt like you needed to jump in and and join that conversation to bring balance to it. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what I saw here in mm-hmm. in our school board. And it's something I've seen across many school boards. I'm now involved in many parent groups across this province and also across the country. Mm-hmm. And the same pattern seems to happen again and again, where uh, an individual raises a concern and they're told they can't have the conversation because of the topic itself, not because of how they said it or what they said. Mm-hmm. I think that hate certainly does exist. And it's absolutely possible to present something in a way that's just inappropriate and hurtful. But I've seen far too many times that something's presented very politely. It's not about an individual. It's just saying, I want to talk about washing usage, or I want mm-hmm. to talk about books. And they're told, no, we don't talk about that here. Mm-hmm. And if we can't talk about that in a school board meeting, then where can we talk about it? Because that's where we establish policy. This is not a classroom. This is a mm-hmm. bunch of adults who get together to set governance bylaws. And mm-hmm. if, if we can't talk about it there, that's concerning to me. Yeah, it's really strange to have things be off limits that way it doesn't feel like anything we've really encountered before. So exactly, it is, it really stands out. And I, I should have done this at the beginning of the recording. I should have asked you to introduce yourself a little bit for people who may not be familiar with you yet. Um, oh, yeah, so absolutely. going, going backwards, <laughs> would you mind giving just a little brief intro and tell people who you are? Sure. So my name is Julia Malat. Um, I live in Canada here in Ontario near Toronto. Um, I am transgender. I started my transition a little over five years ago. Um, I am pretty boring beyond that. I have, I have a daughter who is finishing up high school and I have two, I have a a partner and I have two dogs, two, two matching Westie puppies. I say puppies, but they're, they're almost nine years old. So they're not, they're not puppies anymore, but they feel like puppies to me. They're perma babies. (laughs) Perma baby. I like that term perma baby. (laughs) Um, so you have a it's like called a lot of thoughts your yes. channel and it, I and you do these little videos where you give sort of your your take on a given issue and I've watched a few of these and I really enjoy them. You did one on pronouns. You did uh, like the, a series on pronouns. You did a series yeah. on school uh, schools doing transition uh, social transitions for children and parents' rights. And I just, I find myself agreeing with most everything that you have said. I really like your perspective quite a bit. And I wonder what kind of feedback do you get from people who, what, do you tend to get positive feedback for your views or do you get a lot of the polar? Cause I feel like I get the two, I get a lot of positive responses from people who are agreeing with basically my, my position, but then the, the negatives fall into two camps and they're the two predictable camps. It's either you're a bigot or you're, you're not going hard enough. Uh, you're, you know, you're, you're a lefty, you know, so what, what, what's your response like, look like? That's, 
interesting. I would love to compare our hate messages and, uh, <laughs> and, and see see how they vary. But but no, I get tons of positivity, um, a lot of positive responses, um, a lot of private messages. I have a huge backlog. I feel so bad because if somebody takes the time to write me a message, I want to respond. And mm -hmm. I have been at that point for the past two months that I just can't respond to everything thoughtfully. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm actually taking a quick break um, from Twitter for the summer in order to focus on personal stuff. And one of the things I'm doing is getting through all of those messages so I can respond to everybody. Um, but I do get tons of positivity. Um, mm -hmm. There is also lots of negative comments as well. I I kind of, in my head, have divided those into three different groups, not, not just okay. the two. There is the... So I try to stay very centrist in the middle as much as possible, which mm -hmm. does mean that the two extremes kind of can take issue with that. So mm -hmm. on the progressive side, there is the the trans rights activists who have kind of a very dogmatic perspective on what it means to be trans and what it means to accept somebody who's trans. And mm -hmm. so some of the views that I express don't always align with that. So I, I do get some some pushback from that side. Um, but I also get pushback on the left from the um, the radical feminist movement, mm -hmm. which is interesting, of course, because the trans activists and the radical feminists, I would argue that ideologically they're both left, but they're both using the same principles of postmodern deconstructive to kind of fire at each other because they wow. have this competing rights issue. And so, so both of them come at me while they're coming at each other, but I'm kind of a common enemy. Wow. And then that's really the interesting. Time, yeah, it, it is. I, I, I've wanted to write an essay about kind of what I've seen there. And it's something I might, maybe I'll do this summer while I have some time off. And then the other piece of course is the far right ex mm -hmm. extreme kind of views as well, which, which I also receive, um, yeah, there's a lot of negativity out there, but there is more positivity than negativity. So for me, that definitely means that there's there's an important conversation to be had here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's real. It's it's so interesting how you you can see like the 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 bifurcation of that that leftist progressive criticism. And I, I if you write that essay, I would love to read it because it sounds like you're getting you're in a unique position to take heat from those two sides in a really interesting way. What a what a fascinating cultural moment this is. <laughs> it, it really is, it, it really is. And I, uh, I'm i not much of an essay writer. I'm more of a quick take writer. That's why I do my, my six minute videos where I pack usually 1200, 1300 words max. So mm -hmm. I haven't done a video on this exact topic because I, think, I don't think 1300 words can do it justice. There's a lot of theory that kind of needs to be underlaid to even dive into it. Mm -hmm. So it might be more of an essay topic, but Mm -hmm. I uh I have not written an essay in a very long time, not since my uh, my university days. <laughs> well, you can use that old formula, but plug it in that same yes, essay exactly. outline. <laughs> yeah. So um, when you you get heat from trans rights activists, and so there's this there's been this big growing movement of the LGB without the T. But is there a growing movement of the T that is not in support of some of the more radical aspects of gender ideology? Are you seeing a lot of transgender people that agree with your position and take a more centrist view? I don't know if I would call it a movement or not. I felt very, very much like I was the only one for a long time, which wasn't true. I have, mm -hmm. as I've become vocal on Twitter, I've encountered probably 15, 20 other people total, but I'm, I'm a very, very prominent voice in this right now. And if I've only encountered 15 or 20 people who seem to kind of share that view, then then maybe that's not a movement. Um, what I do know is there are lots of people who share these views and feel this way, but they're not prepared to speak up. Mm -hmm. um, the mm -hmm. 
the viewpoint is very homogenous. Mm -hmm. And so the pushback is intense. I've seen that myself. Mm -hmm. So I know lots of individuals who aren't interested in, in kind of going in and discussing this stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's I'm one just gonna of the pause things... you for a moment. Oh, yeah. My dog is whining like crazy. Oh yeah, go for it. Lift itself up onto the couch. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. No, no, no worries. Um, I've had to pause and yell at kids. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> That's fair. yeah, the uh, the label transphobic, and this is one of the things you made a video about this. The way that people are so quick to it's it's sort of like the school board example that you gave. You know, you see somebody who's giving a criticism, and they get labeled with the the worst slurs that the ideology has to throw at them like and this is what makes people afraid to speak out they're going to be slandered they're going to be people who are especially people who are classically liberal and have always associated themselves with the progressive movements think of themselves as being open-minded don't think of themselves don't want to be associated with something like racism or bigotry or, or transphobia or any of these other you know in, intolerant labels that we could be that could be applied to us and and yet as these labels are being used more and more they seem to be losing their teeth like when i i don't know if you're familiar with the the stuff that i've done but i i made a video um, about eight months ago calling out a, my graduate school for uh mm. the ideology in the counseling program that i was in and okay. the main thing was really the racial stuff. The, the main thing was the CRT. And so I was talking about how we were being asked to handle race in relationship with our clients and that it was concerning to me because it strips away individuality and it boils people down to, you know, race being one of the most important things about you as you walk into a counseling office. And my concerns around this, the school took that video, watched that video and put out a message to the entire student body that called me a white supremacist and a transphobe for some of the things that I said in that video. And, and the thing that was, I, it didn't, it, it didn't hurt my feelings. It didn't make me feel bad. It didn't make me feel um, slandered necessarily. It actually felt like a gift to me because anybody can go and watch that short video and see how untrue their statement is and then look at their statement next to it. And it makes my point. It just proves my point so beautifully that this, this ideology is, has lost its its mind. It's not dealing with reason and, and rationality. But um, I I really enjoyed your the way that you described that the 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 way that this woman Carolyn your depiction of the school board slandering her in a similar way and your knowledge of her behind the scenes. I don't know. What do you think about this? This labeling and this this like false equivalency. If you say anything, if you ask any questions, you're automatically shunted into a, an extremist camp. Yeah, uh, labeling is not helpful. I mean, I, I try to avoid it. And one thing I have learned trying to stay somewhat central and bridging the gap here is that part of our problem is the language is so different. People are using words in very, very different ways. If we use racism as an example, mm -hmm. classically racism has meant, you know, overt acts of discrimination against an individual, whether that's verbal, whether that's physical. Mm -hmm. And that's how we've treated it in the past. Where we've moved to on the progressive side is um, systematic racism, or in other words, you mm -hmm. know, systems of in our culture that might yield unequitable outcomes. And Words are words. We, we make up words as a society. So you can argue either definition if you want, but if we're not using the same definition, that creates a problem for communication. And 
the thing I found when it comes to words like racism or transphobia is that not only have the definitions changed, but one side is utilizing the kind of really strong negativity around it to their advantage as the definition has changed. So transphobia is a silly word. I've had lots of people complain, you know, this is not a fear. And I agree, it's not It's not a fear. I don't think it's a good word, but classically transphobia and homophobia referred similar to racism, like overt acts of hate against an individual, whether that's verbal or physical. Mm -hmm. And now we've moved to this place that anything that does not establish equitable outcomes, explicitly establish equitable outcomes for gay or trans people as homophobic or transphobic, that is not hate though. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's a problem, maybe it's not. We could debate that, but that's not hate. Mm -hmm. And when we're using the word we used to use to denote hate, it can, I think, trigger for a lot of people that same, oh, wow, I really don't want to be hateful. I really don't want to be like that. I need to check myself when maybe, maybe you do, like hate does exist, but there's lots of cases and Carolyn's a perfect example there where that wasn't what was plain true. And there's, there's real life impacts to that. Carolyn is a fantastic example. I, I did not know her at the time, but she's become a very close friend of mine since. Mm -hmm. And it upsets me greatly to see the narrative in our school board and in our community put out that she's transphobic. Why? Mm -hmm. Because they just told, that's what we're all saying. She's transphobic because she did this presentation. And yet she's one of the people who deeply supports me when I need emotional support, when I need to chat with someone, I'll call Carolyn up and she's there for me. And so I, I can't reconcile with how you could define her as transphobic. That doesn't mean she agrees with every aspect of my, the way I am living, but mm -hmm. I don't agree with many aspects of other people's life choices as well. And that doesn't mean that I hate them. Right. Yeah. That's it. That's really interesting. Cause that's, that's something that I've been I've been thinking about is that we we went from wanting tolerance, which I guess tolerance would be the absence of aggression or moves to um, eliminate something. So it'd be allowing something, whatever it is, to exist. We move from needing tolerance to needing acceptance, which is the next level. And now we're all the way at celebration. And if it's not mm -hmm. celebrated, then it's then it's hated. And so that's been an interesting thing to observe culturally. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more that there's been that progression. As far as where I stand, I think that tolerance is is necessary. We can't have a functioning society if we don't have tolerance for people who are different than us, whether that be ethnic diversity or whether that be LGBT diversity or, or whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, I think acceptance is important as well. I, mm -hmm. I think I probably stand somewhere between that tolerance and acceptance points on that that kind of gradation that you've laid out there. But I do agree that moving to the place of celebration is is concerning. It's, it's concerning because I don't think I'm somebody to be celebrated. Um, one of my takeaways, as I've really kind of thought deeply about how we're handling transgender matters in, in society at large right now, is we are treating this like something to be celebrated, like diversity is good for the sake of diversity. Mm -hmm. And the way that I see it, they, I have a disability. Something is, something is wrong mm -hmm. with me. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what that is. It could be psychosocial. It could be biological, you know, there's a lot of things we don't know about why people have gender dysphoria, mm -hmm. but something something is wrong with me. And being allowed to transition, living in a society that allows that to take place has been immensely helpful for me to be able to cope, to be able to thrive and to be mm -hmm. able to contribute to the society. So I, I am so thankful that we allow that in ways that we have didn't even a few years ago, but that doesn't mean it's something to be celebrated in so far as Something, something's not wrong with me. I'm biologically male and that caused me great pain and discomfort. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it's not something to be celebrated. If a kid could transition or could not transition, I would always say we should encourage that kid not to transition. This isn't something we do for fun. Mm -hmm, this is something mm -hmm. we do because we need to. Mm -hmm. And 
that is the narrative that I have seen shift in our schools and in our society is more of a, these are neutral things of, it's like mm-hmm. picking an occupation or deciding what color to paint your house, you know, whatever you like, if you like a pink house, have a pink house. If you like a greenhouse, have a greenhouse. And I, I think that's fine for house color. I don't think that's a good thing when it comes to surgical and hormonal interventions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a really, that's a really um, mature and, and sober take. And I, it's not something I hear expressed very much anymore. Um, the idea that it's, that this is actually a, a therapeutic process in order to, to treat something that has has gone wrong for a person in their life. And I, what I think is interesting is something else I think I've heard you say is that being trans isn't the most interesting thing about you. It's not like, it's not who you are. It's just a thing about you. And that's something I think that gets lost. It's sort of become celebrated in the culture as this end point and this thing that, that it, it's an identity. And I think at the, if you stop at one thing about you, like gender or, or race or, you know, one, one aspect of yourself, aren't you stunting your own ability to develop and grow as a person? Because there's so much more about everybody besides these little demographic labels that we could use. And it would be nice to think that a person would be able to, if they chose to in their life, take steps to, to transition and then continue living a life and live a richer and better life post that decision and not just now make their entire life about that decision. I don't know what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with everything you said there. And I, and I do think that lots of people as they mature have to transition and find that place, at least they used to. The mm-hmm. people who I know who are trans, who are, who are much older seem to have found that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm seeing less of it with the, with the younger generation. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a lot of thoughts around identity. That's another essay I want to write and haven't yet, haven't mm-hmm. yet uh, kind of taken a stab into. But my life coach that I had a few years ago, he would say that identity is something that you honor as yourself. When you take something that is not you and you kind of treat it as though it is you. And I think that's Mm -hmm. a somewhat cynical way to look at identity, but I found that immensely helpful because it kind of focused for me the idea that if I take something, whether that's being a parent or Mm -hmm. whether that's being trans or whether that's being good at volleyball and and I'm horrible at volleyball, by the way, but let's say I was good at volleyball or thought I was good at volleyball. And I, Mm -hmm. I kind of create an identity out of that, then I'm creating an opportunity to be hurt and I'm creating an opportunity Mm -hmm. to lose myself because I might think I'm great at volleyball and you might not. And so you can Mm -hmm. hurt me by kind of, you know, letting me realize that you don't see me as I see me, or Mm -hmm. that could be taken away from me because I could be injured and now I'm not good at volleyball. Mm -hmm. And I I think that's a very natural human thing to do to have these identities. I'm certainly not criticizing people for having them, but what I have tried to do through a lot of my own therapy over the last few years has been to decenter those identities and Mm say, I am the physicality of what I am. I am my mind and I'm nothing more than that. And so mm-hmm. I have had surgeries. I I have taken estrogen for five years. There's an impact to that, but it doesn't have to mean anything specific about me. Mm-hmm. And as I've reached that place of almost Zen in a certain sense, it's, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't care about these matters so much. Am I, am I a man? Am I a woman? It's like, that's, I don't care. Like we could, mm-hmm. we could discuss that. It depends on how we define those words, but it doesn't matter either way because I have nothing vested in any particular outcome to that question versus a few years ago before I kind of worked through a lot of this stuff in this matter I would have had a very nope I'm a woman because mm-hmm. I transition and that's and it, and it meant something to me and that of course is very problematic your life coach sounds amazing <laughs> he was <That's>, wonderful <laughs> sounds like such a great process of of self-discovery that you went through 
It, it really was. I felt very fortunate. I was moving into leadership in my company. And so I was given this coach that often works with CEOs and people who are paid much more than I am. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I'm so fortunate to have this opportunity. Like I am going to make the best of it. And so I was asking for book recommendations every week and I would mm-hmm. go and read them that week, you know, and kind of do my homework because I wanted to to get the most out of it that I could. Cause mm-hmm. I, at the time I was scared of, I only have this for a year mm-hmm. and what will happen when it's gone. And, and one thing he also taught me through that process was I can, I can continue. <laughs> like once I learned how to learn, once I learned how to think critically about myself, mm-hmm. I don't need a coach. I can continue to do that by continuing mm-hmm. to follow those patterns and processes and being curious. Um, so I'm so thankful that he kind of kickstarted that journey for me a few years ago. Well, it sounds like your own openness also was just a critical aspect to that. Your own interest in self-development and in, in being curious about, about life and about discovery of yourself. Um, I think that's really impressive. Yeah. I, I went into that coaching with some, I won't say objectives, but a lot of Mm. anger. So this was fairly early in my transition and I wasn't on speaking terms with my family at all. Mm. I had, they, they were very religious, though they still Mm. are very religious. And so they did not accept my transition and I had kind of cut them off. Mm. And I remember on my very first coaching session, I was telling my coach about this and, Mm. you know, he could obviously sense everything I was creating out of that experience. Mm -hmm. And his response to me was, are you going to trade love to be right? Mm. And I sat with that for a few weeks after that. And kind of what he was saying was, I can, I can dig my foot in on this and say, I'm correct. And these people have hurt me and and maybe they have, or Mm -hmm. I can choose that I want to have these relationships and I can decide that I'm going to work past that and work through it and own those relationships rather than just be a victim in it. Mm-hmm. And that was the very first session I had. So I had a lot to learn from that point. But by the end of the of the year, I had reconciled with everybody in my family. And while there are still some tensions to be worked out a few years later, I have those relationships back. And that that was huge. That's amazing. And that's really good advice. And I think that that's one of the, the best things that that we can say to people we love when we're in conflict. and Or even if we only say it internally is, I love you more than I care about being right. And it's about the connection and not about, you know, I guess, establishing who's, who's correct and winning, winning. What do you win really when you win an argument with somebody you love? Yeah. I, you I can guess go it into depends, that, but. <laughs> well, you can go into that competitive thing that still happens with my partner. Occasionally we're all kind of forget. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you start to dive in and get angry because no, you said this, you did this, mm-hmm. you whatever. And then I'll have to catch myself and go, wait a minute. Like it doesn't matter who's mm-hmm. at fault here. We don't have to know who to assign the blame to. What do we want to create? How are we going to build workability here? And in the end, it's an it's an argument about, you know, salad or something like that. Yeah, it doesn't yeah, matter. Exactly. <laughs> well, and and when you so when you entered that that space and that coaching space and you were in that and you were experiencing that cutoff from your family, that that sort of hard stop. Um, you and you moved forward from that and started thinking about things differently. So that makes me wonder about how because you're also a lot younger than I am. And one of the experiences I had when I was in graduate school was I noticed that the younger people seem to be more easily swept up into the race and gender ideology than, and, and I think it was likely because they'd been getting it more heavily in school and in the culture. And I, as somebody who had already um, grown out of that, that and I was out of that phase of life, I wasn't in academia, I wasn't really consuming a lot of popular culture. Um, I, I wasn't as in, influenced by it steadily. And so these people who'd had more of a steady diet of this 
we're more willing to accept it. And so I kind of wonder about young people who are able to pull themselves out and what that process is like. Was there an unlearning or a deprogramming process for you, do you feel, or, or had you always had a more balanced view of things? No, there definitely was that, was that process. Um, I probably wasn't as deep into it as some because I'm old enough that I, I graduated high school kind of before a lot of this transition that's described mm-hmm. in like Jonathan Hyde's book and stuff kind of came into play. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think I had as much to unlearn as some, as some people, but I still, I still had that mindset. And I think transitioning is part of it because my experience of transitioning was very similar to many people's of you. You have this dysphoria, you decide you're going to transition. You're very uncomfortable with it. And you're going to have to tell everybody. The, the one thing I've always found very both at the time terrifying and now I find it beautiful about being trans is that everybody knows you walk into a room not everybody knows but most people know it's very obvious Mm. it's not like being gay where if you're Mm. uncomfortable if you're in an environment you think this is not a safe place to be gay you can just not hold hands you can just not share who your partner is you don't have to let people know but but I I can't hide from it Mm -hmm. and so a lot of people who are transitioning go into that period where they kind of pull into themselves and do it behind the scenes. They have their affirming group and they're maybe being called a different name within that friendship circle, but by and large at their job and out in society, they haven't made those steps public. And I think when you do that, you're especially susceptible to groupthink because mm. you now have this affirming group that makes you feel good. They're the people you want to be around and they're the people who are calling you what you want to be called and saying what you want to say and who have a very kind of homogenous way of thinking about, about these matters. And so I, I was in that too when in the early days of my transition. And I think that at least from my experience, there was a lot of self-victimization that came out of that. Because Mm -hmm. when you're in that circle, when you're upset that other people don't see you the way you want to be seen or respond to you the way you want to be responded, you can externalize that and say, well, they don't get it. Well, they don't understand the complexities of gender. Well, they don't, whatever you want to to phrase that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I definitely did have a lot of that, which is what I was putting on my family as well. When it was they don't accept all of the pain I've had and all of these experiences that I'm encountering rather than recognizing that I can, I can own that. And I can, you know, I I can be causing the matter of my own life rather than just being affecting the matter of how other people choose to respond to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I appreciate how you're able to get into the, the worldview of someone who is is experiencing these thoughts. And I think that that's so important to recognize the humanity, even in people we really disagree with. And there's, it, that's really great insight into, just as you described, how somebody can take on these rigid beliefs just because of their particular situation or their vulnerabilities, you know, and it, and there's still, there's still so much growth that could be had from that. And how do you, do you try to connect with people who are still is experiencing those feelings that uh, who are on that extreme left in the progressive ideology are do you have a way that you try to connect or are you just more about speaking your mind and 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 maybe planting a seed if if so no i definitely do i i want as many diverse perspectives as possible um because i i don't think i've landed anywhere yet like i'm not convinced that i'm right about anything I'm trying mm-hmm. to look at what works. And my my gauge for correctness is, does this work or does this not work? And mm-hmm. by workability, I mean, whether I am feeling fulfilled and happy and whether or not I am calm and at mm-hmm. peace, but I also mean other people's too. If, if I'm calm and you tell me you're not, then I get that something isn't working in our relationship. And mm-hmm. so I really love that diversity of ideas. Um, but it's interesting because one thing I have found is that when you get to the far, the, the farther left area, mm-hmm. 
people will talk to me, but they won't talk to me publicly. There's oh, a bit of a, a cancellation culture going on over there of when people don't think the right things, we cut them off. We don't talk to them. We shun mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. And so some people won't talk to me at all, but a bunch will talk to me. However, they won't publicly share that they talk to me. Mm -hmm. So rather than record something or even just kind of have a public discussion, they will talk to me privately and mm -hmm. not want to put that out, which is fine. I absolutely will respect anybody's opinions and thoughts on that, but it's to me a little bit telling of what's going on in that area that it's considered to be wrong and bad to talk to people who have, have certain views. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. encountered that early on in my videos. I was, uh, I have a friend, Chanel Fall. She's up in oh, Ottawa. Yeah. She's been a big voice here. And I was going up to record with her and Catherine Cronus mm -hmm. to, to do a video we were going to put out. And I had published this that I was going to be going up to meet them. And mm -hmm. a lot of people took great offense to that. And they actually went after my um, directorship at our local food bank to try to get me kicked off of that because I was even talking to Chanel. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was a kind of funny moment for me at that point because when they did this, my initial response was to defend myself, was to come in and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't even say I agree with her and everything. I just, I, I will talk to her. Mm -hmm. But then I realized, even though I had known her quite well at that point, we'd had many conversations, I didn't even really know what I disagreed with her on. I knew we wouldn't mm -hmm. see everything eye to eye, but when I'm having conversations, I'm not looking for where we disagree. I'm looking for where we can collaborate and work together and understand mm -hmm. each other. And mm -hmm. so I knew lots of things that Chanel and I agreed on, and I had areas where I suspected we may disagree, but I, I didn't even know for sure because we hadn't delved into those areas. And it's just a very different a very different approach than I think many people are taking online these days where it's just looking for the argument, looking for where we disagree so that we can duke mm -hmm. it out and try to make the other person look stupid or you know have ill intention or whatever. I don't even know what the goal is because it seems very counterproductive to me. Yeah, it reminds me of those like news shows from the, I guess, like the 90s or early 2000s when they always would bring in the two sides and then let them have an argument. And I, I just think, what is the point of this conflict? It just, it's conflict for entertainment's sake. It sets people up in a really weird dynamic. Exactly. And I, I get asked to do a lot of podcasts and panel discussions now. And for me, that's that's my vetting point is if you, if you expect me to come on and debate you or debate mm -hmm. someone else, like... I have no interest in that. I think debate is an interesting sport, I suppose, but it's certainly not for me. If mm -hmm. you want to have a dialogue, if you want to get to know each other more and kind of explore the nuances, then that that's wonderful. That's what I want to spend my day doing. Yeah, that, that's right up my alley too. I agree with you. Um, something that you said a little bit ago about children, I, I wanted to, to go into that a little bit because you said you're, you're yourself the parent of a teenager. And you have been involved in the school board issue quite a bit. And you talked about how schools are edging children towards gender ideology. And that's something that I've been very concerned about because I, I think that there's such a difference. There's a, a world of difference between being tolerant or accepting or even, even celebrating people as they are and the, versus pushing people into being something or encouraging them to be something else. And I, I, what I see with the school curriculum and with what we're doing in education broadly in, in the US and it seems like in Canada as well, is a real encouragement of children to consider adopting a, a different gender identity. And I think that, that is a, that's a recipe for disaster. Personally, I, I just put a lot of my own opinion out there when I was asking you for yours, but feel free to disagree with me if you do, but I'd love to hear what you think about that. No, I, I agree with uh, kind of how you phrased that. I, I have an interesting journey on this as well. So my daughter's adopted. 
Um, she came to live with me a few years ago during the beginning part of COVID. Okay. So I didn't go through the, the early portion of, of raising her, but I had the later portion. And when she came to live with me, she was attending online school, as were many people. And she actually came from a city a few hours away. And she just kept attending that school online because mm. schools were shut down. Mm -hmm. But the following year, she was going to be going to our big city uh, high school here where there'd be you know, 2,000 plus kids, which was very exciting to her because she was mm -hmm. in a tiny high school in a, in a small mm. community. And I was worried for myself because I knew what it was like in schools 20 years ago when I was in high school. And that was not a very, that was a hostile place for somebody who's trans. And I was mm. worried, what if, my daughter encounters pushback because I'm trans and mm. maybe her, you know, her friends don't want to come over or hang out mm. with her or something. Mm -hmm. And that might create challenges for her and problems with our relationship. So that was my fear going in. And I was really quite nervous about this. Mm -hmm. And then when she went to school, I quickly realized that it was the exact opposite, mm. um, which was nice at first for the first like two weeks. I was like, wow, I'm really cool. Like kids love that I'm <laughs> trans and that's very nice. And I'm so glad that things have changed. And I am glad that things have changed because mm -hmm. When I was in school, there was no mention of anything here. I knew how I felt. I was completely closeted. I told nobody until mm -hmm. I was 18, even though I had known this for many, many years prior. Mm -hmm. And that that's not healthy for a kid. That built a lot of shame for me. So I'm, I'm glad that we have mm -hmm. an environment that has some openness. At the same time, what I sensed pretty quickly was that there was almost a hyperfixation on this too. It was cool to have identity. We it doesn't take a lot of looking to see that there's like 50 or 60 different you know, prefixes you can stick on now to describe your sexuality or your gender. And to me, that really suggests that this is an identity thing. It's a finding your place. It's a finding a unique way to express yourself, which is okay. I think every generation has had those things. For me, it was being goth. I mean, I wasn't goth, but for my generation, it was being mm -hmm. goth or having tattoos right. or listening to yeah. punk music or some of those things. And mm -hmm. maybe that's this generation's thing, but that concerns me because this has longstanding implications when you move into hormonal and surgical interventions. It's it's one thing when you are looking at maybe getting a piercing or maybe getting a tattoo you're going to regret. And I won't let my daughter get either. She had yeah. a few piercings, but I won't let her get any of the more, you know, novel ones because I don't want her to regret those. I'm like, you can wait till you're a bit older, older before you do that. But mm -hmm. when it comes to something like transitioning, there's there's those implications and risks. And mm -hmm. I think where I draw a line too that's certainly harder than some people's line is even social transition concerns me. Mm -hmm. So social transition is the the names and pronouns. So this is the nothing nothing hormonal or surgical yet. This is just we're going to call you a new name and we're going to use new pronouns because mm -hmm. you've asked us to. And I'm not convinced that that's a good thing in all cases because we're treating that like it's a neutral act, like whatever, mm -hmm. right? Just like kids might say, I'm going to be a pilot today when I'm playing house. And we say, okay, you're an airline pilot. And the next day you're not. And they're playing make-believe. We treat it like it's like that. And mm -hmm. in my experience, it certainly isn't like that. I I really didn't mind being called he, him. Um, I started to transition at 28 mm -hmm. and I had always been gender dysphoric, but I mean, I'm biologically male. I was a man. I had a beard. I knew all of these things. And so <laughs> when you'd see me and call me he, it was, that was just, that made a lot of sense. I didn't like that I was a man, but it was a natural response to call me that until I had that small affirming circle who started to call me Julia and would call me she, her. And all of a sudden mm -hmm. then when I would be at work and you'd call me he and, and call me Jason, I would, you know, no, I really didn't like that because you just you know, you just offended me in a sense, even mm. though you didn't even know that I was transitioning, I was hiding this. And mm. so I look at the, the the social transition and say, this is not a neutral act. Mm -hmm. We we have lots of kids who are gender non-conforming who are experimenting. We have lots of barriers we've created in terms of how we say that boys and girls should behave and 
crossing those lines and experimenting is great. I know Lisa Sullivan Davis in her book, Tomboy, talks about how enriching it is for young girls to be able to experience things that are not stereotypically feminine and, and they tend to be more successful when they've had that diversity of experience. So we should encourage that. But if instead we say, yes, you, you want to you want to wear a dress and play with dolls, little boy, we're going to we're going to change your name and we're going to change your pronouns. We're almost shoehorning them into that place of transition, which maybe that will be right for the kid. That was me as a kid and that I did not grow out of that. But I know a lot of the research does show that most people grow out of it. Mm -hmm. However, if you if you do that social transition and you kind of affirm the name and pronouns early on, then they're less likely to because now they have to kind of come out to everybody again and detransition in a sense and say, actually, eh, I'm not that person anymore. I'm not this anymore. And so I, I have a lot of concerns around that. Yeah, it's interesting when you say that it's being treated like it's a neutral act and, and it's it's very much not. It's a significant act. It's a therapeutic intervention in and of itself to socially transition somebody. And and at the same time, it's being treated like, oh, it's so, you know, just a kid can just opt into this and then the school's going to support them on this with no with no kind of uh, vetting or or diagnostic process for figuring out who this is going to benefit and who it's not. So it's this really easy thing for a kid to do. And then the school will support them wholeheartedly in a lot of cases. And the parent is being, this is, this is interesting how parents are being framed as inherently dangerous to their children in, in these discussions with schools where it, letting a parent know or getting a parent involved in that process is somehow uh, what was, I mean, there's been some really strong language. What did Justin Trudeau just recently say about this? He had some really strong words around um, silencing or isolating these vulnerable people just by letting parents in on that conversation. So it's either a neutral act that means nothing, or it's this very critical thing that if parents find out, we've got to really worry about these children for their safety. So there's so much inherent contradiction in that conversation and how that's being had. Yes. No, I, I delegate to a lot of school boards and I've made a lot of videos on this topic because mm -hmm. the, the dissonance between those two positions, I cannot reconcile. So I think what you're referring to is that in, in Ontario and in many school boards in Canada, I don't know where it is in the States in terms of the, the different States, but up here, it's very common that if a student does not want their parents to know about a transition at school, the parents mm -hmm. are not informed. Mm -hmm. And this is actively done by the school. This is not a teacher sees some cross-gender play on the, on the playground and reports it to the parents. We're saying if a kid comes and says, I would like to be called Julia and I would like to be called she, her in all of my classes in every way in the school, then the teacher will say, okay, and mm -hmm. they will go through a process with the administration to make sure this is on record, that all the teachers know, that substitute teachers will know. And if the kid also says, and I don't want my parents to know about this because I don't think that they're going to like it or they're going to let me do it or they will be unhappy, then they will also actively not tell the parents and they'll have a procedure in place to make sure the parents don't know that says, you know, we call we call this little kid Julia, but if we have to call home, we, we call them Jason. Mm -hmm. And mm. This is this is very common. And to me, that's just mind blowing because we're making the assumption that the parent is is harmful and is dangerous. And mm -hmm. of course, there are harmful households. This is not new to schools. Yeah. But that's the point. It's not new. There has always been a risk of harm in households. And this is why mm -hmm. we have children's aid services that specializes in identifying those households and supporting those households. Mm -hmm. And in any other case in school, if we suspect that a kid is at harm at home, then we contact children's aid because they're the ones who can 
determine if that's a, if that's a bona fide risk and they can support the family. But in this one area, we've said no, we can't even go there. We're just not going to even tell the parents because they, there might be there might be a risk of harm here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting, and it's interesting how we got to this point where we're thinking about families this way. Because like you said, there've always been families that will, you know, fall outside of the, the norm and will be harmful, as you say. And then there's a process for that. And there's been a longstanding process. But this this attitude now around this issue seems to be that the average parent is a danger to their own child. And, and that seems like a really concerning turning point in language. Exactly. And then for me, that comes to the, the dissonance between these two positions of, mm-hmm the argument to let kids do it without medical support, without even their parents knowing is this is, this is a neutral act. This is almost mm-hmm. nothing. It's just a name who cares. Yeah. Uh, and yet at the same time we're saying, but it has to happen. We, we have to do it because the kid desperately needs this. Mm-hmm. We cannot tell the parent because the parent might get in the way and the kid desperately needs this. And I'm like, how can you have it both ways? How can it be so important and so impactful to do, but yet also so not risky to do that? Like that th- is a no brainer that, certainly isn't my experience having transitioned, certainly isn't the experience I've seen with many of the transgender students who I have known and who I've worked with. Mm-hmm. And I, I know people who are pushing these things, they mean well. They look at mm-hmm. kids like me in school and they look at the the mental health consequences that I experienced by not dealing with this, not having a place where I could even discuss it. And they say, we don't want to create that. But I think we've swung it very far in the other direction in response to that. And I, I don't think that helps anybody at all. No, and it's really strange, and it feels like it's the kids that end up, um, the families and the kids who end up really losing out in this, because not not only do you have the school not performing a meaningful exploration of what's going on, but the parents are now prevented from doing that, even if they do know about it, they if they want to push back or provide exploratory therapy for their child or or look at this in some other way than than just patently affirming the school won't back them up. So the child has the whole apparatus of the institution behind them. And so the, you know, the space for honest and genuine exploration of what's going on and what does this mean to that individual child is, it's just missing in a lot of these pictures. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that up here in Canada, a lot of that is because of our anti-conversion therapy laws. Mm -hmm. So we have laws that, you know, prevents conversion therapy for gay and trans individuals Mm -hmm. and, I think they followed the they followed the gay pattern on that because of mm-hmm. course there is a history of trying to you know convert the gay Pray away. The gay away yeah. Pray the gay away, exactly. Yeah. And I in that case, I understand why we don't want to do that. Because mm-hmm. if somebody's not sure if they're gay, they might be gay. Experimenting is probably a good idea. Why don't you try being in a gay relationship and see what happens? Maybe you're mm-hmm. gonna be like, wow, this is me, this fits. Maybe you're gonna be like, no, this isn't me. And 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 that's probably a very risk-free way to determine mm-hmm. if that if that fits. But I don't think the same thing applies when it comes to surgical and hormonal intervention. I think that mm-hmm. trying it out and going, oh, I actually want to back out. If I were to do that now, I have had genital surgery. Right. I have had things that are going to have implications. And right. so we, I think it's good to have that product front, not to convert, not to try to stop me, but to say, is this the right solution? Are there comorbidities? Are there mm-hmm. other things going on that might be better solutions for you? Knowing and kind of telling the individual from the beginning, like if, if not, like, absolutely, you can transition, but we're going to do our due diligence the same way we do with anything else in the medical community, right? We don't jump to the more extreme intervention. We say, maybe this 
medication that has no impact will help you. Maybe sleep will help you. Maybe mm-hmm. a better diet will help you. No, we need to do gastro bypass surgery. Okay, well, we'll, we'll yeah. go to that. But like, we're not going to just start there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's really, that's really wise. It's a measured approach taking, leaving the more extreme interventions off until, you know, you've explored other things first. Um, one thing that you talked about in one of your videos that I, that I thought was interesting, you touched on the drag queen story hour phenomenon. And I, I got, I guess I, and I don't, I don't mean to like get into like the upper echelons of why, but like, where is this all coming from societally? Is this just compassion? Are people just trying to be, is this a well, what do you think? Is it, is it well-meaning, well-intentioned people who are just, you know, making some really extreme choices? What do you, what do you think this is that we're seeing with, with this celebration of these extremes? That video was a lot of fun. Um, yeah. I was nervous when I put that one out. It was fairly early on in what I was doing and it kind of moved into a new step of controversial topics that I wasn't quite sure what I was going to encounter. But I, I did it because I am at a loss for why people are defending Jag Queen Story Hour. Mm-hmm. Like as somebody who is trans, I find it offensive. <laughs> I, I present this way because I have deep gender dysphoria. I'm trying to present normally. I'm tr- my ideal goal, like most you know, trans people would be to blend in, would be to not be noticed, to not stick out so I can live my life and just care for my kids and go to normal social things and just not stick out. Mm-hmm. And then we have drag queens who's, you know, adopting the most regressive forms of stereotypical femininity, often in a sexual manner, manner for show. And as the drag queen phenomenon for adults has proliferated and kind of taken off over the last 10 years with things like RuPaul's Drag Race, for me, that has been deleterious because people more and more equate me with that. It's like, oh, I understand what you're going for, what you're doing, because I watched Ru- Ru- RuPaul's Drag Race. And it's oh, like, gosh. you know, that that's very offensive to me. It's that like would be a like caricature. Yeah, it's like, I understand what it's like to be Arab because I've watched Aladdin. And it's like, Mm. well, you know, that's not your best model of what it means to live in an Arab country, right? Like, that's a cartoon movie that was made Mm. by a bunch of white people. And it's, I, to me, that's what this seems like to begin with. So I'm not a fan of drag. That doesn't mean Mm. I'm out to stop drag. That's an adult activity that people can do what they want. But I I do find it troublesome. Mm -hmm. But then you look at extending that to little children. And I'm just like, I don't even understand the why. And so I researched it before I made that video. And what I was finding was people saying, this shows them acceptance and diversity and, you know, makes it fun and all of this. And I just, my takeaway was always, I do see the importance of that. I do, I do see why it's valuable to be able to show, you know, not really young children, but children of elementary school age that, you know, trans people do exist because you might encounter them in society, just like we show them that blind people exist or Mm -hmm. people Mm -hmm. of different races exist. But if that's really our goal, why wouldn't we show them someone like me who Mm -hmm. is presenting as normally as possible and just say, yeah, you know, Julia, Julia is biologically male, but that wasn't working. And so she decides to, you know, to wear dresses and that's okay, right? We can all, we can all accept that and then move on rather than go to drag queen and kind of take this really extreme fake found like interpretation of it. Like I I do not understand what that's meant to achieve. And I'm at a loss for why people dive in and defend it so, so deeply that that's an answer I haven't really been able to get, to be honest. Yeah, it is really, it's really so interesting. And I, I kind of, I guess, because I, well, I do have young kids, but I, I, we don't do library story hours. I haven't seen that in I haven't been up close to that, but I keep seeing the videos come up and I think, wow, it's just, it's so perplexing to me that this has become this mainstream 
thing for children to be involved in. I mean, drag is kind of, I always thought drag was kind of fun and just, just campy and kind of adult humor. And I, I didn't have any kind of a, it wasn't a political thing to me. It just seemed like some, like kind of a fun thing. Some people do you, there's the drag brunches, which I never actually went to one, but I always thought they looked like kind of a fun time. And it wasn't, I didn't have any kind of a judgment about that. It just seemed like, like one of many things people might entertain themselves with, but the idea of mixing children into that, uh, it seems, you know, kind of carnivalesque. And Precisely. why is that mainstream? I don't get it. Well, exactly. And yeah. you know, one thing I found really encouraging. So I have many friends now who are gender critical, many connections in the anti-woke community mm-hmm. and locally. Um, mm-hmm. Many of those individuals were the ones who ran in the school board election mm-hmm. that I mentioned back mm-hmm. in 2022. And as I have come to know those individuals, I've, I've met all their kids, you know, we'll, we'll hang out, we'll get together and have parties. And these individuals, I, I think a lot of people would assume, you know, they, they're trying to shield their, their kids from anybody who's trans and completely let their kids not know, but mm-hmm. they're fine with it. I exist mm-hmm. and they want them to know that I exist. They just don't want it to move into the place of encouragement. They want to be able to say, yeah, Julia, mm-hmm. Julia is what Julia is. And mm-hmm to me, that's been a healthy balance. The same thing I've encountered with my sister's kids who are quite young and, you know, the kids know enough to be like, okay, I don't really understand it because you're a kid and you don't understand sex yet, but like, okay, yeah, you know, Julia, Julia used to be Jason and now we call her Julia and that's fine. The kids don't care. We don't have Mm -hmm. to go deeper, Mm -hmm. but instead we're saying kids need to know when we're going to use some of these books and, and drag queen story hour to dive into things that are, that are above them. That just isn't necessary. And, and I think part of it is they're trying to, support these kids who are just four. I can say, you know, well, then that way they'll know those options and things. But like, I knew how I felt my whole life. I, I found the word transgender when I was 12. And that was back in a time when it was nowhere in the school. It was nowhere in the healthcare system. This was me Googling, like, how do I turn myself into a girl? Cause I was desperate, but I knew I felt this way when I was younger. Mm-hmm. If there was like a single poster in my school saying, you know, like you struggle with this, go talk to your guidance counselor. I would have, I would have known that was me. Mm-hmm. We don't need to shove it down everyone's throats. We don't need to have it everywhere. It's like, mm-hmm. just you know, and the other thing too is therapists and counselors weren't looking for it back then. I saw four counselors before grade six. Like mm-hmm. people knew that I was struggling, that things weren't working, but no mm-hmm. one was looking at gender identity. Mm-hmm. Now we're at the point that if a kid is struggling and they're getting, you know, therapeutic support, people are going to zero in and go, maybe there's something it's here. It's being suggested. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. You know, we don't need to show them drag queens so that kids will self-identify. We, we have a much better system to support kids like little Jason at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really, that's really well said. It's like we're laying out the red carpet and we're making everything about this in order to support people who could feel supported with, with less of a pomp and circumstance and less of a big net that drags other people into it as well. Mm-hmm. And that for me is a risk both selfish, selfishly and selflessly. I'm, I'm scared because I don't want people to make mistakes that I regret. Mm-hmm. I don't want people to transition and regret those transitions. I know people who have detransitioned and deeply regret, you know, the, the path they've taken and some of the changes they made to their body. So I, I don't want that to happen to, to children and adults, mm-hmm. but there's also for me a selfish element too, because as that has happened, as we've seen so many young people move into this, following their friends, kind of moving into an identity place, I worry that they're going to regret that when they're 28 and they want to have kids and they can't because they've had a mm-hmm. hysterectomy. Mm-hmm. And many people who detransition become very hostile towards trans people because they feel that they weren't given the right information. They were duped into something that mm-hmm. didn't work. 
and they're very understandably angry. And I think, is that the kind of thing that's going to unwind the progress we've made of acceptance of people like me? Because we're going to get so many detransitioners potentially in five or 10 years that it will be very easy for the average person to think this is all a sham. This is all bad. This all needs to go away rather than no, there's a small group of people who are deeply dysphoric. There always have been. We do well to support them. And there's a lot of other people who got caught in this identity politics that were playing that should not have transitioned. And mm-hmm. and that's one of the reasons I spoke up too, is to say, how do we separate this? How do we remember that there's, there's more than one group of people here? There's more mm-hmm. than one thing happening. Mm-hmm. And it's not a one size fits all solution. We don't need to abolish transition, but we also don't need to give it and shouldn't give it to everybody who goes through a period of thinking they want it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you know, and that that's like when when you were saying that you have friends who in the gender critical spaces who still you find that they're accepting of you and that they, you know, you're part of their family circle and really you're it the false teaming and this false this polarization of you're either on this side or you're on this side can both lead, I would think, to a perception of intolerance where it is not and also to the cultivation of intolerance where it wouldn't have been. And so, you know, the, that's, that's something that, that I find really concerning is that these ideologies, the gender ideology, the race ideology, it makes people feel like we have two teams, like there's us and them and people pick sides and become dug in. And there's a, there's sort of a cultural backlash. And so you could end up with people making judgments that where, where they really wouldn't have previously they would have had more of a curiosity or neutrality now things have become political something like like for instance just just going back to drag that's that i still find that sort of like campy and funny and it's really it's easy to laugh about where did we how did we get here but something like a drag performer which is which is this caricature cartoon clownish thing i would have had a a, a non-political thought about I wouldn't have thought one way or the other now I see that and I feel like kind of I feel like like uh, I don't know like defensive like I want to know you you're a groomer I mean I got I've got these associations why would I you know why would I think that it's because the culture has pushed it that way and it's the same with so many things it's like pitting pitting people against each other based on race pitting people against each other based on 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 sex and now with gender and just yeah it's Mm -hmm. not two camps like you said it's not just two camps and that has been a large reason why I'm doing what I'm doing as well, is that we do have this divide that seems to be getting ever wider mm-hmm. and ever more hostile. And so there's lots of people who are on the more right-leaning side of it mm-hmm. who don't know a transgender person. They've never met a transgender person. They've certainly never had a conversation or definitely not a friendship. Mm-hmm. And we know from looking at how gay rights progressed that what changed people's hearts was knowing somebody. It's mm-hmm. easy to say, you know... I all relationships should be between a man and a woman because this is how my relationship works and that, you know, that works for me and this is unnecessary until you know someone and you see their pain and you mm-hmm. understand that they're not groomers as they were called back in the 70s, that they are you know, individuals who are just trying to live their life. And, and that was what changed people's minds. And mm-hmm. I think that trans individuals on the progressive left are doing a really bad job because they're, they're angry and they're yelling and they're taking kind of that critical social justice approach that does not change hearts. Mm -hmm. So my approach has been get as deep as I can into the right-leaning circles, because then you can know a transgender person who's friendly, who's conversational, just so you can see my life and come to know me. Not that I'm looking to change anybody's mind. I'm I'm not looking to do that insofar. Actually, I should, I should qualify that. I am looking to change people's minds in terms of keeping people from the extremism of reminding Mm -hmm. them that transgender people can be normal, that transgender people 
of just trying to live their life. I'm not trying to convince them of any particular ideology or even any particular political uh, agenda. Like I'm not looking to argue washrooms or something like that with an individual, but I am looking to just show them that not everybody who's trans is looking to groom their children. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's, that's really great. Showing the humanity behind, you know, what, what gets lumped into identity categories where we're, we're at the end of the day, we're all people. We're all individuals. Mm-hmm. And um, so wrapping up, uh, I really appreciate this conversation and the chance to get to know you a little bit better and, and hear your thoughts on these things. And is there anything that you think we left out that we should have talked about or, or do you want to mm. offer um, next steps or what's next for you? Oh, I could talk to you all day about this. Um, we didn't talk about pronouns. I don't know if no. you want to, oh, we don't have true. to, but yeah. if you want to go into that, we can always open that can of worms. Okay. Yeah. I mean, if you have some thoughts about that, I'd love to hear. Yeah. Yeah. So my, uh, my journey around pronouns was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I went down the same path. I think many trans people do at the beginning where you, you have this dysphoria, you feel like something in you along with societal expectations of what's expected of you and your gender doesn't work. And so it feels really good. You know, you get the warm fuzzies when you're getting these different pronouns. Mm-hmm. And so I, I experienced that in my small affirming group, which that group is becoming larger over time. And these were good people. These were people who loved me and cared about me and wanted to affirm me. Mm-hmm. But I, of course, would get he, him sometimes because people make mistakes because I'm fairly tall and I have a fairly low voice because they knew me as Jason and I'm asking them to make this change in you know how they're seeing me. And so that would happen. And I realized it would devastate me. Like when I would get he, mm-hmm. him, it would put me into a place of you know, wanting to just be by myself for like three days at home and not wanting to talk to anybody, especially that person, because I felt uncomfortable. And, and I wasn't angry at them because I knew that they didn't, they, they meant well. Mm-hmm. But I was upset because it pushed me back into reality because I mm-hmm. was living outside of reality imagining mm-hmm. that I was biologically female as much as you are. And mm-hmm. the minute that someone calls me he and calls you she, it would mm-hmm. remind me, oh, right. People notice that I'm not biologically female. They might love me and care for me anyways, but they know I'm not biologically female and I don't register for them as the same mm-hmm. as someone who's biologically female. And because I was not living in that reality, that was really devastating, right? I had this this construct that was being ripped down by someone else's language. Mm-hmm. And it was when I came to realize that, that I'd say I went on kind of the greatest transformation towards the mindset that I have now. This mm-hmm. was during my, my coaching time. And mm-hmm. I, I realized that living outside of reality is not helpful. I am biologically male and there are implications of that. It would be as though I thought that I was the best singer in the world and I'm not. Mm-hmm. And I knew some theater kids back uh, when I was in high school who, who thought they were the best singer in the world and they weren't. And they're constantly being pulled apart because other people don't treat them like they're a diva other people don't mm. worship their voice the way that they think they should just they should get mm-hmm. and I realized I was doing the same thing and if I accept my biological reality then then I don't have to be hurt by that because you're just acknowledging what I am which is in, in many ways kind of beautiful right that you you see who I am who I actually am and as I said these are people who love me who, who care mm-hmm. for me who want community with me but they do know that I'm biologically male and mm-hmm that was the biggest hump that I kind of went through. And it brought me to that place of not having to care about pronouns or really any of the language at all. Mm -hmm. I use she, her for me. My family uses she, her for me. And and most people do because they know that that's what I'm going for. Mm -hmm. But if somebody doesn't, whether it's because of an accident or whether it's because they have a principle where they say, I refuse to use the pronouns that, you know, somebody wants to use, it doesn't, I realize it has nothing to do with me, really. Mm -hmm. You know, we've Mm -hmm. created this narrative as though 
everybody has this obligation. And I don't think that's fair or helpful. That moves into compelled speech, which is you know, dangerous in so many ways in my mind. So I do think it's a little bit insensitive to intentionally use words that people don't want used towards them. I certainly right. don't want to do that to other people, but you know, being insensitive and being a bit of an asshole isn't, shouldn't be illegal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just maybe, maybe not very kind. Yeah. Yeah. That's well said. And it's, you're describing the process of, of sort of learning not to put your own self-worth and, and need for validation in the hands of other people and instead taking on responsibility for yourself and reality and and not allowing other people to impact your own um, your own sense of value in your own life with their words. Yeah, I'd say I went through three phases there. The first phase was that external validation of other people need to say the right things to me and support me in such a way that I feel validated mm-hmm. as female. Mm-hmm. Then I went through this phase of it doesn't matter what other people say because I I know I'm female. I can validate mm-hmm. myself, you mm-hmm. know, which I think is what we teach people a lot is the whole find it in yourself. Mm-hmm. I didn't stay there though. I kind of went to this next phase of, oh wait, I, I'm not, it doesn't matter. Like mm-hmm. that sort of decentering identity to the point of I'm, I don't really care what I am. I don't really, language is useful to communicate and that's about it. I don't have to label myself at all. So I'm really quite apathetic at this point to, to the words, you know, like what, what am I? I don't know. It depends on how you want to define all these words and you tell me your definition and then we'll know what I am as a result. Mm-hmm. And then we can go have coffee. And that's all that matters. It doesn't, it doesn't matter, you know, kind of working out the, I, I don't know where I was going with that. This is what happens oh, when no. I talk for this long. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I get like that too. No, I, I think that, you know, what you said about not wanting to use language that's going to be you you don't want to hurt someone's feelings if if you care about somebody and they're sincere you're gonna you know generally try to be supportive of them in the best way that you can and i i feel like i don't i don't know a lot of trans people in my real life i haven't known a lot of trans people i haven't known anybody that i have uh, misgendered or used used pronouns that they wouldn't want for themselves against because i feel like that would be rude but when it comes to young people who are playing with gender identity and wearing the buttons and they've got the they them one day and the he him the next day and then this you know it's just she they sometimes my my stance is to avoid usually avoid using pronouns with that Mm -hmm. person and just use their name or try not to be inflammatory I don't want to directly be inflammatory with with the the kid but I also I don't want to I I see that as kind of a, a a manipulation that it's complex and it depends on the person and it depends on the situation, but it can, in, I guess it's, it's very difficult to speak in general terms about something that's more, more individual. So on pronoun usage for other people, I think that that's a nuanced thing that, that, and my whole, my whole like video on pronouns was really about how to handle being asked to give your own, if you don't want Mm -hmm. to. Because I do think that when you're making a decision about how to talk about another person, you have to use a lot of factors to, to decide that. And one of one of the important ones is going to be your connection and your perception of the other person and your perception of their sincerity and 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 how you want to you know interact with them. If I'm if someone is really presenting as as female, say to say he if you think that that person is sincere, that seems like a hurtful thing. It seems like a needless thing. Why would you make that point? But 
sometimes you might question the person's sincerity or you might want, you know, there just might be a host of other reasons. And so I think it's just, again, it's an individual decision that we should all be able to make. And like you said, sometimes people can be jerks and that shouldn't be illegal either. Um, it's very individual. I, I am very against the idea that we all need to play with pronouns in order to get rid of the, I guess, get rid of the concept that we can even know. It's, it's a linguistic tool. This is how we talk about people in the third person, gendered pronouns. It's just how we've, we've done. It's what English does. And to demand that everybody supply pronouns at all times when supplying their name just upholds an illusion that we can't know, that we shouldn't be able to perceive gender when looking at people. And that I think is, is being done out of an overabundance of compassion for people who are uh, presenting ambiguously or androgynously or when you're unsure. When in fact, there are polite ways to handle the fact that some people do present in a way that, that causes confusion. We can, cre we can create a space where there's room for those people to clarify without creating an illusion that nobody ever knows. I, yeah. I probably use no. like way too many words to, to express something that could have been more simply expressed, but. No, I love yeah. what you touched on there because it's like, I have gone to great lengths to try to present as feminine as possible. People should know what I'm going for. It's pretty mm -hmm. obvious. Like mm -hmm. I have been on estrogen, which has led to breast development. I wear a lot of feminine clothing. I have long hair. Like there's a lot of things there that suggest what I'm going for. Um, people may choose to use it. They may choose not to use it and they may slip up. That's, that's going to happen, but it should be pretty obvious. But mm -hmm. what it is, is what I think you described of this ambiguous thing that's come in, the, the non-binary side of, I reject the idea of a gender dichotomy at all. Mm -hmm. I, which I guess is a political statement one can take, but that's not dysphoria. When mm -hmm. people tell me that they're dysphoric as non-binary, I, I don't know what that means because mm -hmm. how can you be dysphoric that you are I don't even I don't even have the words to describe what that's supposed to be. To me, that's always been a political statement of I think that our gender stereotypes are problematic and we shouldn't have mm -hmm. those and fine. Mm -hmm. I guess you can you can hold that, but it's been conflated with gender dysphoric individuals like myself to deleterious effect because now I get asked pronouns all the time. And it's like, you do realize that's frustrating for me, right? Yeah. To be asked pronouns. Like yeah. I had this one meeting a few years ago at work kind of earlier on and same thing. I'm wearing a dress. You could see my breasts. I have makeup on everything. And at the end of the meeting, our consultant said, oh, Julia, I forgot to ask you your pronouns in front of oh, everybody. Gosh. And nobody else has asked. And I'm kind of like, why would we need to? Like, yeah. I, I call myself Julia in this meeting. I am dressed like this. What do you think I'm going for? I hadn't we're not even asking thought of Jeff. that. That yeah, hadn't right? even occurred to me that it could be uh, offensive on that and that end and, and hurtful on that end as well. Gosh. Yeah. The yeah. consultant didn't give us his pronouns, but you know, yeah. he was very clearly a man. He was biologically male. We had no reason to think he wasn't. And so mm -hmm. we didn't need to ask him what his pronouns were. And I think people hear that and, you know, on the one side of the spectrum, they say, see, this is why we have to ask everybody their pronouns all the right. time. So we're right. being, and I'm like, no, or we could say sex exists. We could, sex exists. Biology exists. The, you know, the two sexes exists and I am biologically male. I'm presenting feminine. We all know that we can choose to support me. We can choose not to support me, but we don't need this whole world of infinite possibility because that, that is very ideological at that point. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that, I think that there's a way to handle that. That's polite. That says maybe in, in, in an intro or in a meeting that says as, as we go around, everybody state your name 
And if you'd like to offer pronouns, you're welcome to do so. And mm-hmm. then, and then that's it. Just go, go around the meeting, allow people if they want, if they feel like they need to offer that up to make a clarification, they can offer that. And that that's co it's still coded language. It's still code for, you may not perceive me the way that I want you to. So I'm just going to go ahead and clarify so that you'll know what I'm going for here. And, and then you can move along. And I, I think that there's space for that to be an, you know, sort of an etiquette, um, sort of, uh, what do you want to call it? Like a little ritual of etiquette, but without, without doing away with the concept of sex and how somebody's presenting altogether as anything related to how we address them. And I think you're, I think you're so right on that. I know of some individuals I've encountered in my various experiences who have various disabilities, like physical disabilities or Mm -hmm. mental disabilities, and Mm -hmm. they will choose to share because we can support them by knowing the certain thing about them that may not Mm -hmm. be obvious. And so they will come out and say, just so you know, Mm -hmm. I have a hearing impairment. So I struggle to hear if you can not cover your mouth and, you know, kind of talk very clearly, that's helpful to me. And I think that's great that we create space to do that. But Mm -hmm. same thing. We don't all have to clarify. We don't have a hearing impairment in every introduction. It's they will, they will put that out there and we will have grace to be able to receive that and accommodate. And Mm -hmm. if you have a special request around pronouns, put it out there, put it out there. And I think that's great, but expecting Mm it and acting like that should be the default is weird and also I think unhelpful yeah I agree that's yeah well said that's a good analogy so Julia are there where would you like people to follow you I'm going to put links down in the um in the notes but do you want to give out verbally your socials or anywhere people can look for more content yeah absolutely so I call myself a lot of online um, because it rhymes and I think it's That's funny. cute. Um, it's cute. Yeah. And uh, believe it or not, there aren't many, a lot of mulattas out there. So I'm a lot of mulatta on everything. I'm a lot of mulatta <laughs> on YouTube. I'm a lot of mulatta on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok. Um, I spend a lot of my time on Twitter, or at, least, or at least I have in the past, um, because that's where a lot of these conversations are taking place. Um, I don't know if that's going to be my main platform going forward. I'm currently on a Twitter hiatus as I spend time reading and writing and doing chats like this, but kind of not being as active in the discourse. Um, I'm growing a YouTube channel where I think I'll be putting a lot of my, uh, my, a lot of thoughts videos going forward because it's an easier way to share them for people who aren't on Twitter. And I've been getting deeper in, on Instagram as well. So I'm kind of, those are probably the three places to look for me, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Um, and I'm a lot of Malata on all of them. Awesome. Awesome. I will um, put those links down below and thank you for a really great conversation. I've really enjoyed talking with you and I hope we can do it again sometime. Yeah, this has been fun. I would love to come back. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you.